we're going to be seeing today. Uh, in fact, what I would say is a model way to pray. In fact, while you take your Bibles and locate Ephesians chapter 1, let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered if there is a prioritized way to pray? Like we make it say this in the business world. Are there best practices for praying? Like is there a certain type or model of prayer that we should engage in for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for our fellow church members? Is there a specific way that we should pray for them that's found in the Bible? Well, I believe there is, and I think the answer is remarkably um, not just shocking, but paradigm-setting. And I trust that'll happen to you this morning by God's power as we open his word to Ephesians chapter 1. The answer to those questions is really in verses 15 to 23. It's one sentence in the original text. We have it in two sentences here in our English translation. But it just shows you that Paul is, uh, has a way in his opening, uh, in his opening chapter of just uh, running on and on and on. You know, verses 1 through about 14 is one long sentence. Here now, 15 through 23, again, one long sentence. And so to fully understand what Paul is communicating about maybe this model type of praying for our brothers and sisters, I want to take some time and visually show you in our lab this morning the simplest way to understand the text. I don't think God's Word's complicated, but I think sometimes in our translations it can, it can, it can almost be read in a complicated fashion. There's a lots of clauses, lots of phrases, lots of modifiers, and you can almost miss, like, well, what's the main point here? And so I want to take some time visually and go to our lab and kind of walk you through just a very succinct and simple understanding of this text. So my goal is to, first of all, simplify the text for you. My second goal, then, is to amplify the text for you. I'm going to spend some time at the end just kind of um, elevating the three things he's praying for and make some application for our church. So your Bibles are open. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's read the text together. I'll walk you through it. If you mark in your Bibles, just follow along with me. I think this is a good way to kind of see the text unfold for us and not miss the point he's making. Ephesians 1 verse 15, Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, for this reason, and notice that's, a, that's an opening introductory phrase. Whenever you see the word for, you can ask yourself, okay, so that's connected somewhere. It's a transition word. I believe it points back, most specifically, to verses 1 to 14. In other words, the reason that he prays for them is because they are in Christ. It's because of their position. They've been blessed by God through the Son and the Spirit with all of these riches, with all of these blessings, their positions in Christ. So because of who they are, because of where they are, he says, I want, I'm praying for you. But notice what he says here next. He kind of has this, this clause, doesn't he? Because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. The word because there is, is uh, the word since. And so I would not see this clause as a, as a causal clause. I would see it more like a temporal clause. It just gives the timing of their conversion and points us to when he began to pray this way. I don't think it says it's why he's praying this way. I think that's in verses 1 to 14. But it does seem to say, hey, since, since you came to Christ and I've seen your love toward all the saints, as I've watched this happen, knowing that you're now in Christ, I'm praying for you. This is really the main point he makes. Notice the next phrase, I do not cease to give thanks for you, 
remembering you in my prayers. If there were a main clause, this would be it. This is what we call the main verb. You could circle some other words here. Give thanks would be very synonymous with the idea of prayers. So Paul is simply saying that he is in an unceasing way praying for these Ephesian believers. He's giving thanks for them. He does this in a constant manner. This would be what we'd call the main what. I'm going to put the word what out here. So if you're asking yourself, what's really the point of these verses, verses 15 through 23? It's that he's praying in an unceasing manner for these believers. But there's more to it than just that. His next phrase explains what he's praying. He says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Again, lots of words there. Wouldn't you agree? Like, what's going on with that? Let's just kind of narrow this down. Here's what he's praying, that God would give them, I'm going to kind of square this off, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, there are some things that modify that. He wants God to give that to them, and he wants this spirit of wisdom and revelation to be pointed somewhere, mainly to the knowledge of him. Perhaps he means God there or Jesus, but he's pointing to this relationship they have with Christ and, and God. All of that kind of modifies this, this request that he makes when he prays for them in an unceasing way that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, notice that the word spirit there is capitalized. I do think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Some of your translations may have it non-capitalized, and their meaning by that, that perhaps it's just like this, this uh, spirit, uh, not a bad thing, but like you might just have some human insight or human wisdom. But I don't think we get wisdom and revelation into our relationship with Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. It's not a humanly in intuitive subject. It is a divinely uh, given, uh, divinely highlighted, divinely illuminated subject. So I think this is a very good word usage here, that what Paul is praying is that the Holy Spirit would give them wisdom, revelation into their relationship with and position in Christ, their knowledge of him. He wants them to have a deeper more intimate understanding of this place where they actually are, which is in Christ. That's the discussion he just came out of, wasn't it? 14 verses of their position in Christ. He said, I'm praying that you'll understand the full breadth and width and depth of that. This is his prayer for these believers. How would that occur? That's his next phrase. He says, this occurs by having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And notice something here. You'll notice that Paul is doing what I call a, a waterfall of prayer. You could even use the word stair-stepping. You could even say he's um, kind of crescendoing downward. So he says, I am praying for you. Here's the, kind of the main clause. The secondary clause would be that you would have the spirit of revelation and wisdom into your knowledge and, uh, about God and Christ. And this happens by your hearts being enlightened. So he's kind of stair-stepping down his thought progression. I love this phrase here because we normally don't think about eyes and hearts together. You typically think about eyes being connected to something in your brain or your head. You know, one of those moments where you're like, oh, I get it. Your mind finally is, you know, aware of something. But here he's saying that our hearts have those kinds of eyes. That the Holy Spirit, watch this church, can give you supernatural aha moments where you have insight, wisdom, divinely revealed um, um, insight into your relationship with Christ 
Your heart is enlightened. In other words, it's, it's uh, uh, made known to what's going on. It is an aha moment, we'll call it. The word enlightened there is, is very similar to the next word in this text, which is the word know. And it has more the idea that you, by experience now, like you're, you're knowing something beyond your head, you're seeing it play out in time and space. We could call it experiential knowledge. So that's what he's praying, that you will, through the Holy Spirit, be given insight, wisdom, and revelation into your relationship with Christ. And this occurs by, by your heart just being, uh, oh, I see it, I get it. The Holy Spirit awakening you to what's going on. And he says he's praying this way in regards to three areas. This is, again, these are further down the stair-stepping uh, progression of thought. So that you may know, the word know here, I'm going to put an arrow back, is very similar to the word enlightened. And there's three things that Paul is praying the Holy Spirit would give them wisdom and revelation into. Three things that their hearts would be enlightened to. First of all, it's hope. We'll say more about what this hope is in a minute. Let's just understand the flow of thought here. The second one would be his, the inheritance. And third is the power. These are all things that belong to God. I think this is pretty intriguing. Notice what he says. The hope to which he has called you. So God has a hope for you. He's called you to this hope. Paul is saying and praying that they would know more about that. Paul is praying that they would know the riches of, let's just word, his glorious inheritance. Who owns the inheritance? God does. And then they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. So this idea of immeasurably great power, it's more the idea of something that's off the charts. Like you really can't measure how great it is. It would be similar to the mathematical term infinity. It's boundless. Paul is saying, I'm praying that you'll know the off the Richter scale nature of God's power, especially as it's aimed at you who believe. I mean, this is a great prayer, isn't it? Paul's praying three things. You'll know God's hope to which he's called you. The riches of his inheritance in the saints and then this off the chart power that's towards you who believe. Now, when you see a prayer like this, you may think, wow, uh, how is that answer? How is that possible? Who can answer that? Well, God can. And that's what he does between the end of verse 19 and the rest of the chapter. He shows us how and why he can answer this prayer, on what basis he answers this prayer. I'm going to write it here for you briefly. Here's what he does in 19 through 23. I think these are all modifiers about this. This, uh, these three things. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 19. You see the first word, according to? So God is going to give you wisdom and revelation into his uh, hope, his inheritance, and his power according to or based on or in keeping with the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, the same power, church, just, just grasp this, the same power by which God raised Christ from the dead and then seated him after his ascension is the same power that God will use to answer this prayer. 
In other words, God will answer this and give this to you in keeping with the way he raised Christ and seated him. It's the same power. So if you've ever wondered, can God answer this prayer? Wonder no more. He can. He raised Christ. Christ has ascended. He's seated by the Father. So this is, a, this is amazing. It's so comforting to know that God can and will answer these prayers because of what he's done in Christ. And then 21 forward shows more modifiers about Christ and his power. Look what it says. Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's got a name that is above every name, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And God has put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So as you look at the remainder of this chapter, you realize these are actually just phrases and clauses that modify God's son and God's power. And it's because of his power in his son that he can assuredly say to his children, I can answer this prayer to give you insight and wisdom by the Holy Spirit into the hope to which I've called you, the inheritance in the saints, and my measurably great power. So here's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in the most succinct fashion. Hope you've kind of seen it kind of stair-stepped or at least kind of water falling down. Um, it's a simple prayer in which he's saying, I want God to give you a Holy Spirit insight, supernatural aha moments where your heart is suddenly awakened to all that he's doing, especially in three areas, his hope, his inheritance, and his power. So that's the prayer. And whatever time I have remaining, I want to kind of break out for you and amplify for you now the three things he's praying for to give us a better understanding and, and grasp on how we should pray for each other. Because here is a model prayer from Paul on how to pray for other brothers and sisters who are in Christ. So he's praying for three things. Let's just kind of break them apart for a few more moments. Paul prayed, first of all, for, for what I'm calling aha moments by the Holy Spirit in regards to, first of all, God's hope. You see that there in the beginning of verse um, 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The hope to which he has called you. I think he's referring there in general to the promise of eternal life that God has given us. You see, in the scriptures, the word calling in the vast majority of times refers to the calling of God to sinners to repent and believe. In fact, I would say it's in Ephesians chapter one. He talked much about how we were predestined, we're adopted, we're marked out, we're called, we're chosen. In other words, there is this call of God to men and women to believe the gospel, to trust him. It's how we are saved. We hear the word of Christ, we believe. That's how faith is given. And so we trust in God saves. Here he's saying that this is the call of God and it is a call that has hope to it. So I think what he's pointing to is this. He wants these believers to really understand and, and know from the Holy Spirit's wisdom and insight like this extent of their salvation. That it's not just an in-the-moment fix. It's not just a quick fire escape from hell. It's not just a, 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 a specific thing that in the here and now, like it kind of makes us feel better. It has eternal and lasting effects that when God saves you, he will keep that promise and save you fully all the way to the end. He will finish 
what he has started. See, that's really the gist of the word hope in the New Testament. We hear hope and we think about like a Christmas wish, a hunch, kind of a 50-50 gamble. I hope I get that job. I hope I get this as a present for my birthday. Hope I don't get cancer. But in the Bible, hope is much more defined as a, as a, um, a confident assurance about the future based on past promises kept. And God has kept his promises in the past 100%. He has saved every single person who has called on his name in repentance and faith. And not only has he saved them in the moment, he saves them every single day. He keeps them. That's what the Bible calls that. He keeps them saved and he will save them fully when Christ returns. In the Bible, it's known as the three tenses of salvation. I am saved. I am being saved and I will be saved. And God is responsible for every bit of that and he will do that. So that's hope. That's comforting. That's confidence. In fact, here's how Paul would put it in 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. Look at this verse with me. Here's the idea of a calling, referring to God's calling and salvation and his promise to keep it. Paul said this, he who calls you is faithful. Say the rest with me, church. He will surely do it. And in Philippians 1, 6, we're told this, that God who started a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So here's our hope, church, that God, yes, has saved you, but that he will keep you saved and he will save you fully when Christ comes. That's our confident assurance. And I'm so thankful for that hope, aren't you? It's that hope that enables Romans 8, 1 to be true in your life. So what's Romans 8, 1? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great news? Here's why that's good news, because every single person in this room, every single person listening or watching, in fact, every single person on the planet will not only stand before God one day, I'll just speak it to you frankly, is standing before God today. We often as preachers will talk about this one day when we stand before God. The, the stark reality is you're standing before God now. There is nothing hidden from his sight. And so all of us must answer this question. What is my only hope when I'm standing before God and all my sin is stacked up next to me? That's the reality every person's living in. Me, you, Every person. I expressed this last week at a funeral I was conducting to some folks who were there. I said, you can't worry about the person in the casket. Fortunately, in this case, she was a believer, born again, was with the Lord. But I said to them who were there, what you must ask yourself now is, what about your life? And when you come to the day of your death, will you have done what is necessary to have all the sin that is stacked up against you taken care of. And of course, they're wondering, well, what do I got to do? And the answer is, you can't do anything. Jesus has done it all. So all we do is respond in faith and belief in Jesus. I share with them this. I said, when I was 14 years old, that's what I did. I realized my sin was stacked up, my violations against God, all the commandments I had broken, and it was an avalanche just waiting to crush me. But it's not just true for me. It's true for you. It's true for every single breathing person. There's a mountain of sin stacked up next to you. What are you going to do about it? 
You can't do anything, and neither could I at 14. God so graciously came to me at 14 through the conviction of the Holy Spirit and said, Todd, Jesus Christ died so that your sin will not crush you. I've let it crush my, crush my son, and if you'll trust in Christ, he'll take all of your guilt, all of your condemnation, he'll bear it on the cross, and he'll give you his righteousness. And I'll declare you innocent, and he'll bear your guilt. And on that day at 14 years old, I called out to God to save me. I asked God, would you, through your son, release me from the condemnation of guilt from my sin? Will you stop this avalanche of sin from crushing me? You know what God did? God on that day declared me innocent of all the sin I'd committed. Now, I still committed it. I was actually guilty, but God, through Jesus, justified me. He declared me righteous because of Christ. That's why my only hope is Jesus, and it's true for you as well. If you don't have Jesus, you're left to try to fend off the avalanche of sin that's going to crush you, and you can't. It will overwhelm you. It will kill you. It will condemn you. But Jesus has stood in your place. He is your hope. If you've never trusted Christ, if you've never called out to God to save you from the mountain of sin that's stacked up against you, that's going to stick to you forever and condemn you, I would pastorally urge you, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from the condemnation of sin. That's how we deal with sin. That's why this is called a calling with great hope. Because now when I stand before God, later when I stand before God, at any point when I'm standing before God, guess what God sees? God sees, as crazy as this sounds, a righteous, innocent child because he sees me through Jesus. That's hope, church, isn't it? Man, that's gracious mercy. And if you don't know what hope is, you're feeling the weight of your sin as you stand before God, oh, trust Jesus Christ today. This is what Paul was praying for his church, that they would know the hope to which they've been called, this full extent of the salvation that's in Christ Jesus. I pray this for you guys. I hope you pray it for one another, that we'll know the riches and the depth and the, and the beauty of this thing we know as salvation, the gospel. That we'll not just see it as some quick fix or fire escape, that we will know it's truly the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. It is God's rescue from condemnation that will treasure our salvation immensely. The second thing he prays for them is that uh, they would know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, when you hear that phrase, you're pretty good with it up until the phrase in the saints, I suspect. Like, I'm pretty good with that phrase. There's a know the riches of his glorious inheritance. We're like, yeah, we want to know that. And we learned last week that this inheritance is something we are and something we have. It's guaranteed and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so we're like, yes, we want to know all about this inheritance. But then this phrase comes along that says, in the saints. Like, what is that all about? I thought the inheritance was in Christ. I thought it was something in me. But here he says it's in the saints. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? I think what Paul is pointing to here in all frankness, is that, is that it's within the church that God is expressing and displaying how he works and what he does. 
In other words, it's where his inheritance shines. It's among the saints. In fact, the phrase in the saints is best translated among the saints. In other words, within the people of God, we see the value of God's work in the church. Acts 20, 32 shows these very same words used in a similar fashion. Look what it says in Acts 20, 32. When Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders, the folks who were overseeing this church, he said to them, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. And then watch this phrase, give you the inheritance. So God's word, God's spirit helps us see to kind of grasp this inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's the phrase among the saints. And so one of Paul's prayers is that they would really know the, the value of God's church, that they wouldn't underestimate or undervalue God's people. And in all honesty and transparency, man, this is what the last 12 months they've shown us, that we can easily undervalue God's church, can't we? We can too easily let the culture lean in on us. We begin to second guess clear expectations and commands from God involving his church. And I think here he's saying, and I'm praying that you will know the value of the church around you. This is where the inheritance is often seen. It's where the different angles of the diamonds are, are brilliantly displayed. This is what Paul is praying. Not only that they would know the eternal life God has for them, but the value of the church around them. And then thirdly, look what he says next. I'm praying that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. In other words, that they would know then the, the unexplainable yet visible work in them. I word it that way on purpose because we have these words here, immeasurable greatness. It, it's, it's like I said earlier, you can't describe, it's incalculable. You, you can't measure or chart it. It's like, how, how do we describe something we can't really explain or, or measure? So he's saying, I want you to understand and know this power. I want you to actually see this at work in your life. This immeasurable greatness and its power exerted toward those who believe. So it's, it's unexplainable in some ways and yet it's visible in other ways. I, I make the statement because the same set of words, like the idea of his power, his might, his greatness. It, it's used in places in Scripture where when you see it used, there's always this visible aspect of something occurring to indicate God is working inwardly. Let me show you one of them, Colossians 1.29. Here Paul is explaining his apostolic ministry, his work as a teacher, as a missionary, church planter, preacher. And he says, for this I toil. In other words, he's working hard. But he says, struggling with all, what's the next two words? His energy. We would say, man, I'm working hard with all my energy, Travis. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, I'm toiling and struggling with all his energy. The implication being that those believers in Colossae could see Paul's ministry and work, but it wasn't really Paul's energy energy. It was God's energy. Does that make sense? So what God's doing in Paul is suddenly showing up on the outside to these folks who are watching. He says, I'm struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
This is a very similar verse to Ephesians chapter 1 in which Paul prays that those believers would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. In other words, yeah, it's hard to often explain what God is doing, but it does come out often one next right step at a time. You've seen folks like this, haven't you? God changes them, he saves them, and suddenly you see their life begin to change. And you ask them, man, what's going on in your life? They're like, "Uh, I don't know. Man, I met Jesus and something's going on in my life. And they can't really explain it, but they just keep taking next right steps. And one step after another, one week later, two months later, three years later, there's this different person. You were to ask him, hey, how'd you do that? Their first answer would be, I I don't know. God just saved me and changed me. Now, if you were to ask him to empirically perhaps chart that out, they could probably say, well, I started this and then I did that. But in the moment, it's almost unexplainable because they're probably thinking, I can't believe God did that in my life and changed me. I I was having all these struggles and addictions and problems, all these idols, and God rescued me from all of them. His power was working for those who believe on a progressive, often yet, yet often slow manner. There are two guys in our church who are among those who've been saved recently. Um, And if you were to talk to them, this is what you'd hear, something along those lines. Like they, they just can't quite explain why they just can't quit get enough of the Bible. Like, man, I, I just got to read more of the Bible. Travis is working with one of them, and he just keeps saying, oh, man, I just want to keep reading the Bible. And he's like, this is strange for me. You know? <laughs> but he's just drawn. He's got an appetite that's, that's just uh, ferocious about the Word of God. Another man that I've been talking to, he, he, he's waiting to get baptized, but he's like, man, I, I know I've got to. I know I will. And he's excited about it. I mean, you find that believers who've been born again and God's working their heart, they're they're excited for their next step and they may not explain everything, but man, they are so thirsty and hungry to keep growing. This is what Paul is praying. So just hear this, church. This prayer in which Paul says, this is what I do. I pray continually. I give thanks for you that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and a knowledge of Christ especially in three areas, God's hope, God's inheritance, and God's power. This is what Paul prayed for these believers in that church. This is not a new kind of praying for Paul, by the way. He didn't just like pick out the Ephesian believers or whoever was read this circular letter and say, well, I'll just do this for you guys. This seems to be a normal kind of standard operating prayer for Paul that when he heard of believers who had come, when he heard of folks who had come to Christ, This is the first thing, the prioritized way he prayed for them. Look at Colossians 1 for a moment. Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. Here's a a prayer that almost mirrors what we read in Ephesians. I'll just read it for you. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. Paul said this to those believers. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see that? That sounds very similar to Ephesians 1, doesn't it? So what we're learning is there is a prioritized way to pray for our fellow brothers and sisters. There are some best practices for prayer. There there kind of is a model way to pray for those who are around us who are also in Christ. And here's what I would say that way is. Here's the take-home truth, kind of the singular sentence today to kind of get our hands around. 
Pray that God would grant your fellow saints through his Holy Spirit bright-eyed depth into his hope, inheritance, and power. I mean, we talked about that moment when you kind of get something and your, your eyebrows go up and your eyes widen and your smile goes this way. Oh, I get it. That's what Paul's praying for, that these Ephesian believers would get it when it comes to the extent of their salvation and God's hope and calling to the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the value of the church around them, and then his power that can work in them. This is how he's praying for them. So with your eyes wide and your eyebrows raised and your smile ear to ear, could you read this for me with me? And let's say, okay, here's the prioritized way to pray. Here's kind of the model or some best practices when it comes to praying for fellow brothers and sisters. Together, church, pray that God would grant your fellow saints through his Holy Spirit bright-eyed depth into his hope, inheritance, and power. Yes, Pray for Holy Spirit-empowered aha moments about the extent and beauty of God's eternal salvation, his eternal life he's given people, about the value of the church around them and the, and the, the greatness of his power in them. Now, as I share that with you, and as you consider that, here's what I don't want you to hear. Don't hear some kind of like, think your best thought for someone, you know, believe the best for them. Glass is always half full. Let's have a good outlook on life. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about praying in ways like, you know, just put your best foot forward. It'll work out in the end. I'm talking about praying for people with gospel-rooted confidence that because God raised Christ from the dead and seated him after his ascension, that because God did that, he can, for the person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you, he can also now give them incredible, spirit-generated, spirit-illuminated insight into his full salvation, uh, the value of the church and the power that's in him. God can do that. And sometimes we look at our situations around us. We wonder, man, how will this ever change? How will that person ever become a Christian? Or how will that Christian ever go? We have all these, you know, thoughts sometimes. Is it really, can, can this really change? Can, what can affect this? I'll tell you what can affect it. Prayer, because the God who raised Christ and after he ascended, seated him, is the same God who's answering these prayers. And he's answering our prayers with that same power that he showed in Christ. Church, pray. Can I just say this to you? Pray in faith and with confidence. God is able. I also want to poke at you just one more time, a little more painfully in an application. This type of praying, this type of best practices, this prioritized manner of praying, I think it means that we don't let Aunt Sue's cat, Uncle Jim's sore toe, or Aunt Gladys's job rise above these prayers. You ever notice in some prayer meetings that when we pray for these things, it's, it's, awful, very, it's often very quiet and we're not sure what to say, but man, ask for someone, you know, what else you want to pray for? Man, they, they mentioned some of the 
the needs that are among us in regards to these kinds of things. And I'm being a little facetious here, okay? But I'm trying to show you something. We often pray for our list. I think this is showing us how to pray for God's list. Now, I'm not saying it's unbiblical to pray for Uncle Jim's sore toe, Aunt Gladys's job, maybe even Aunt Susie's cat. Jury's out on that, okay? Here's what I'm saying. It would not be a biblical way to pray if that's all we prayed for. Yes, we're praying for needs. The Lord's Prayer even says that. But prior to our needs being met, there is this, this worshipful tone that we're praying to God our Father who is holy for his kingdom to come. In other words, watch this. We should pray first for internal revelation among the body and the people in our church, second for external resolution. But what we often do is we switch those and the church becomes a, almost like we're just praying for a bunch of external resolutions. The cat, the job, the sore toe, the bum knee, the bad foot, the finances. I don't think that's wrong, but that can be the extent of our prayer life. And our prayer life should center first and foremost when it comes to praying for others on asking God to give them internal revelation through the Holy Spirit into the depth and intimacy of their position in Christ and this relationship they have with him and this life they have because of him. That's the most important way to pray. So hear me well, church. Let us keep praying for people's needs, but only after we pray that they would have their spiritual needs met first, that God would give them insight through his Holy Spirit, wisdom and revelation by his Holy Spirit into the, the, the breadth and depth of their relationship with Christ, especially his hope, his inheritance, and his power. That's the best way to pray for your brothers and sisters. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.